My name is James Green. I'm the associate pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. Hey, would you guys pray with me this morning? Father God, I pray if we sang that song, we meant it. (laughs) God, truly, if we are hungry for more of you, you'll take us and you'll shake us and you'll put us exactly where you need to have us that we can bring you the glory that you are worthy of. God, it's not enough to come and sit and listen and not go out and do anything. If we're hungry for more of you, that'll show in how we apply your word to our lives and the actions that we take. God, help us to leave changed today. We love you so much. Just ask all those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to be with you all here today. If you would, turn with me in your Bible or open your version app or however you follow along in your Bible to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 15. We're going to spend a little time here today. Pastor Dan has been preaching through the book of James, and we'll be back, he'll be back up here next week to continue that. But I want to take just a little break and focus on something that I think is one of the main themes that you see in the book of James. And I want to give you, you know, if you haven't looked at the outline yet, if you haven't looked at the title, and I need to let you know technology let me down just a little bit. I was out of town this week and I texted in my outline and the last two points didn't make it actually into the bulletin. So I'll try and alert you when those come along. Just take notes as you go. But, but if you haven't seen the title, if you haven't seen the outline, you don't know what we're going to be talking about today. I want to give you a little clue, a little uh, visual clue. And it's from one of the most compelling and deeply theological movies I think I've ever seen. And so we're going to show this clip from Finding Nemo and then we're going to talk a little bit about theology. Nemo! What do you think you're doing? You're gonna get stuck out there and I'm gonna have to get you before another fish does. Get back here! I said get back here now! Stop! You take one more move, mister. Don't you dare! If you put one fin on that boat, are you listening to me? Don't touch the boat. Nemo! He touched the butt. You just patted your little tail right back here, Nemo. That's right. You were in big trouble, young man. Do you hear me? Theology is what you think when you see it. If you've seen the movie, I think it's a great movie. My kids and I have seen it about a million times. You know, you understand that Marlon then pursues Nemo across the ocean all the way to Australia. And the pursuit that he, that he does, it reminds me of the, the radical pursuit God has for us, even in our disobedience. But one of the scenes I think is really neat, the other kind of main fish in the movie, Dory, uh, it's not the brightest fish in the ocean, but, but Marlon's talking about how sad he is this has happened to Nemo. And he said, I made him a promise that I'd never let anything happen to him. And Dory says, well, that's a stupid promise. (laughs) And and it just screams out to me, hey, if we don't let stuff happen to us, it means we're not engaging. We're not doing stuff. And I think what we see all throughout the book of James, this is what it's just screaming out to me, we're supposed to do stuff. 
And when we do it, we're supposed to do it in obedience to God's commands. That's the idea that I see. And so, if you haven't figured it out yet, obedience is what we're going to talk about today. And here's why. Five chapters in the book of James, 108 verses, and by my count, 54 imperatives, 54 commands, 54 times that there's something we're supposed to do. You see it throughout the entire book. Consider, do, be, receive, prove, confess, pray, over and over again. James is telling us there's stuff we have to do in obedience to God. One of the most challenging commands from the whole book is in chapter 1, verse 22. It says, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers. See, these commands are supposed to be applied in our lives. We're supposed to be obedient to do them. And so we need to hear this message for sure. Sorry. But more importantly, we need to do it. And so I have to ask the question. We've seen, you know, why do we disobey? Why did Nemo go out and touch the boat? I mean, it'd be nice if as Christ followers, as soon as we began our relationship with him, we just had this innate ability and desire to fully obey his commands. That'd be really helpful. But I think we know that's not the case, isn't it? I think sadly it's pretty easy to look around and see a lot of people who profess faith in Christ who don't do those kind of things. And they'll say, hey, I know the commands. I understand I'm not supposed to lie or cheat or steal. And and they'd say, hey, even I know that verse that says keep the marriage bed pure. And yet we see these people cheating on their taxes and cheating on their spouses and stealing office supplies from work and those kind of things. Stuff like that happens far too often today. It really does. And what we want to do is realize that's not new. (laughs) Scripture is full of examples of these same kind of things happening. People who should be known for their character and their radical obedience, and instead they become known for something entirely else. So I think we'll look at this passage in 1 Samuel, and we'll see where Saul, King Saul, compromises in a situation. And to say that, that's, that's not accurate. What he does is he just disobeys. He flat out disobeys God. In the scriptures, Saul's not known for his obedience. As Christ followers, it'd be great if we were known for things that we were supposed to be known for, things out of the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, gosh, have you met Amos? Amos is the most kind guy I've ever met. Gosh, do you know Lee? Lee is just the most gentle guy I've ever met. Wouldn't that be nice? Do you know Jody? Jody is just, oh, when you speak to her, she's got the most joy. But what happens is we, we begin to know these people for things that are far less flattering than that. Moses wrestled with his anger. Solomon dealt with narcissism. Samson had self-control issues. So did Peter. Thomas wrestled with trust. For King Saul, it was insecurity. Saul was much more concerned with attaining honor and prestige in the eyes of man than he was in pleasing God. And so that character flaw leads to disobedience in this passage. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 9, God had instructed Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekites. But Saul didn't do that. Because he's insecure, he went and he took King Agag and he wanted to gloat over him. That would make him feel better. And because real wealth was measured measured back in those days by how many livestock he had, he didn't kill all the livestock. He kept some of them. So he disobeys. And then not only does he disobey, but he does what I've done, what a lot of us do in that circumstance. When we're called out about our disobedience, he tries to rationalize it. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 10 to 12, it says that God is grieved because of what Saul's done. And because God is grieved, well, then Samuel's grieved. And so he goes to Saul. He approaches this conflict, and here's what happens. Starting in verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the commands of the Lord. I'm obedient. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, Well, they've brought them out from the Amalekites. Not me, they. 
For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we've utterly destroyed. And I see this situation unfolding, and sadly, I'm too big a fan of sarcasm, so I like Samuel's response here. Saul says, oh, I'm obedient. And Samuel says, but wait, what's that noise I hear? Is that a sheep? Saul just starts piling lie upon lie here. He said it obeyed the Lord, but he hadn't. He says it's the soldiers who disobeyed, and maybe technically it was because they were out there, but they did it with his permission. And then he's caught, and he has the audacity to say, oh, but I kept these things so I can sacrifice them. They'll be an offering. And I think there's a clue in here to the condition of Saul's heart because even when he's lying about this so-called offering, he says it'll be to Samuel's God, not to his God. Did you catch that in the text? He says, I'll sacrifice to the Lord, your God. I assume it's because of my background. I don't have time to go into all this, but I was a chronic liar. I struggled with this for years. I just, I'm really aware of this when I see it in the Scripture and in life, when I see people trying to rationalize disobedience. I think probably the best example of this in Scripture, I guess maybe it's actually the worst example of this in Scripture, is the rationalization that Moses' brother Aaron does when Moses goes to get the commandments. He goes up on the mountain to get them, and the Israelites get antsy. And they become rebellious, and they ask for an idol to worship. This all takes place in Exodus 32, verses 1 to 4. It says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a god who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron should have said, No way. But instead he said, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And then all the people tore off their gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. That just hurts. So Moses comes down from the mountain, and he sees what's going on, and he can't believe it. So he goes to his brother, his confidant Aaron, and he says, Hey, what's up? And here's what Aaron comes up with in Exodus 32, verses 22 to 24. Aaron said, hey, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know these people. They're bad people. They're prone to evil. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Aaron is clearly the first evolutionist in the Bible, if you didn't catch this. <laughs> I don't know. They gave me the gold. I threw it in there. I was hoping it would be like a platypus or a hippo, something really cool. But this calf came out. I had nothing to do with it. It's almost unbelievable sometimes the lengths we'll go to to justify the lies we tell. But listen, before you get too hard on Aaron, think about the stuff you've heard here today. Somebody is not happy in their marriage, and so they begin to rationalize. They say, hey, well, my spouse just doesn't make me happy anymore. And God wants me to be happy, so without a doubt, I need to get a divorce. Hey, my spouse isn't meeting my needs, and God wants my needs to be met. Not my wants, but my needs. And so we begin to rationalize. We see this all the time. Here's a little something free of charge. Do you know the Bible never says we're supposed to be happy? What God wants for us is to be holy. He wants us to be like Christ. And I'll tell you this right now, obedience is what makes us more like Christ. If you take out on just an all-out pursuit of happiness, I'll guarantee you it doesn't lead to holiness. But the opposite is true, I think. When we pursue holiness, it's amazing how God brings 
our circumstances to, to give us happiness. Wouldn't it be better to be known for being obedient? Wouldn't that be the thing? Oh, man, have you met Cliff? Cliff is the most obedient guy I ever know. If people would say that about us, that would give God all the glory that he needs. That's exciting. But that's not what you see from Aaron in the Scripture. It's not what you see from Saul. Back in 1 Samuel, Saul tries to blame the soldiers, but Samuel stops him short, starting in verse 16. Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul's going to regret this, but he said, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're exterminated? This is all pretty clear. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but you rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I did. I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. Well, there you didn't obey. But I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took some of the spoil, some of the sheep and the oxen, the choicest of the things that were devoted to destruction. They're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. You see what Saul's done there? He's readjusted the commandments. He's tweaked them a little bit so they're easier to obey. I'd like to treat Scripture that way. That would be pretty good. I know Scripture says I'm supposed to pray for my enemies. Hey, could I just pray they get hit by a bus? Could I pray they break out in boils? You know? And then people say, hey, James, are you praying for enemies? I'm like, you bet I am. I don't have to tell them what I'm praying for, do I? You know, the one I'd like to change is this pesky Great Commission thing. It says I'm supposed to go out and make disciples. Couldn't I just sit and make excuses? That'd be easier can't do that. Back in the text, Samuel doesn't buy what Saul's selling, and here's his response to Saul's lame excuse. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, watch out. He has also rejected you from being king. As important as it is to obey, to do the things God's commanded us to do, we've got to do it with the right heart. To rationalize or to do something with a rebellious heart, with a wrong motive, we may as well not do it. God wants us to clearly obey. And so we have to ask, well, what does it take? What does it take for us to place ourselves outside of God's will in this area? Would we have to be tested like Saul and Aaron? Or do we just rationalize based on our circumstances? As we're walking through the book of James, you're going to see all these commands, and do you go, well, that's nice. Oh, I'm sure that'll really preach. Or do we say, wow, <laughs> the, the Apostle Paul wrote these inspired words for us to obey because when we do, that's when we'll be in God's will. I think it would be helpful for us to really look at the purpose of obedience. God has a real purpose for us in our lives, and I think this might motivate us a little bit. If you look at the entire story of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the entire picture is this big picture plan of redemption and reconciliation with God. And because that's the big picture, there's a sub-theme. And you see it, and it runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And it's this. There's blessings for obedience, but there's consequences for disobedience. It's that simple. When we obey, we're blessed. And now listen, <laughs> hear me on this. That's not a prosperity-type blessing. That's not a health and wealth type blessing. I love that Laura Story song. I wish we'd been able to sing it today. What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? 
What if a thousand sleepless nights is what it takes to know that God's near? What if the trials of this life, the pains, the hurts, the hardest nights are the mercies in disguise? It gets me every time I hear it. She sings, all the while God hears each spoken need, but he loves us way too much to give us lesser things. Listen, not all songs you hear on the radio have good theology. That one does. Not all movies are as theological as Finding Nemo. We don't get to pick what the blessings are in our life, but when we obey, we're blessed. And the converse, of course, is true then. When we disobey, there are going to be consequences. I mean, there were serious consequences for Nemo when he went and touched the butt. He had to go to Australia. Doesn't sound that serious, but you you understand. There were serious consequences for Saul in this passage. He's not going to be king anymore. Now, this doesn't mean we can't confess and be forgiven. It just means that even if we're given, if we're forgiven, there's going to be consequences. I could go out tonight and go camping out at Trail of Tears. I love to go camping. And I could start my little campfire, and I could not put it out, and every tree out at Trail of Tears could catch on fire and burn down. And there'd be the consequence of me going to jail. But, but even after I got out of jail, if I went and confessed to the park ranger and confessed to all the people who love to camp and there's no more trees out there, I could be forgiven, but hey, there's no more trees. <laughs> I can't bring them back. There are consequences when we do these things. As I said, throughout Scripture, the entirety of it, you'll see this theme over and over and over and over. And it's incredibly evident in the history of Old Testament Israel. And the fundamental problem with God's people in the Old Testament was this. It was their repeated failure. It was their inability to keep God's commands. God would always bless their obedience, always. But their habitual disobedience would lead to consequences. And eventually, that's what got kicked them out of the promised land. That was their consequence there. Blessings for obedience and consequences for disobedience. It's a basic principle that applied then and applies in our lives today. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, I think explain to us what God's looking for from his people. And it's pretty clear. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Why? For your good. God's requirement for us, his expectations from that passage relate to trust and then obedience that flows out of that trust. And that obedience will bring about our good. In general, God's requirements for his people back then and still today are not that hard. I should say, they're not that hard to identify. We, we know what they are. Love him. Serve him. Obey him. Abide in him. Fear him. We see those things. And if we show them in our lives, then that's huge evidence of a growing personal relationship with him. When we trust that God has given us those commandments for our very good, that's when we'll do them. That's when we'll trust and obey. But when we think we know better, when we think that God gave us all those commandments just to limit our freedom, then we don't trust and obey very well. In the Experiencing God series, Henry Blackaby uses this illustration, and I love it. He says, suppose you had to cross a field that was full of landmines, and a person who knew where every one of the landmines was buried offered to take you through it. Would you say to him, I don't want you to tell me what to do. I don't want you to impose your ways on me. I mean, maybe it's just me. I'd hope it a big old boy, and I'd jump on his back. I'd get me a piggyback ride through there. I'd stay as close as humanly possible to that guide. Why? Because if I didn't, I could die. The instruction, whoa, hey, you might not want to step over there. It would be a good one to follow because I could blow up. 
And you understand, seriously, I'd have to trust that person. But if I did, if I did trust him, there's no way I'd say, ah, I'm sure I can make it on my own. How bad could the consequences be? I don't want to face the consequences of disobeying in a field filled with landmines. I got to see this notion four times, a big, beautiful way with my kids. If you're a parent, I guarantee you saw this one too. And it was when you're trying to teach your kids how to swim and you wanted them to jump in the side of the pool. And do you remember that? The idea was you stand there and, and you have the same position every time. And you say the same command every time. And I could see the little wheels turning their head and they're standing there and looking. And, and it must look so exhilarating. It must look so cool. But they're going, I don't know. The big guy who takes care of me, he's down there. It looks like he'll catch me. Maybe, I don't know. You know and it turns into kind of a tense moment. And you're standing there. And you keep repeating the same command. You know what it is because you've been standing there. Jump. Just jump to daddy. Jump to mommy. I'll catch you, I promise. And finally they jump. And it is exhilarating. And, and the blessing for them is they then do it 306 times in a row. And your arms get real tired. But, but that's the deal. It's just so much fun. It's a phenomenal thing. That's the way blessings are supposed to work for us. And, and still we tell them. Don't you? Right, right after you finish the 307th time, you get out and you say, hey, now listen. Don't go jumping in the pool if I'm not there to catch you because that'll kill you. you probably, don't, <laughs> probably don't scare them like that. But you warn them of the consequences. That's the way it's supposed to work. But I think sometimes, even as believers in Christ, we walk through this idea, through this life, as if we have no idea that God has written this big old love letter to us with the commandments in it trying to tell us how to be blessed and how to be more Christ-like. You ever get something? Or this way you get a toy or a a piece of furniture, a big gas grill or something, and you open the box and you take the instructions and just throw them away. I mean, that's a guy thing. Some guys do that. But, but I think what happens is what's even worse, what if you get it and you open up the instructions and you read it and you go, eh, what good is this? These don't do me any good. Or worse, I think sometimes we kind of try and tweak them a little bit. I'm sure I know better than these guys. Tough and challenging verse out of James 1.19. says we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Isn't it much easier to say, oh, man, that's silly, God. I'd much rather be quick to anger and quick to speak because I'm good at that. Can I just tweak that a little bit? Here's what that's like. It'd be like me reading that gas cap on my car that says unleaded fuel only and going, oh, that's ridiculous. You know how expensive is that? That stuff's expensive. I got a garden hose right here. I think I'll just fill up with this garden hose because this water is cheap and it doesn't smell and it never catches fire. I'm sure this is... Car companies, they're probably in league with the oil companies. I'm not going to do that. Well, what would happen? I mean, what's the problem with that? That's not how the car was designed to function. It only runs correctly with the unleaded fuel. You put anything else in and it locks up. Well, let me tell you, God's commands work the same way in our life. Disobedience is bad for us. It's like putting water in the gas tank or trying to walk through the field of landmines by ourselves jumping in the pool with nobody to catch us. It's not where the blessings are. The blessings are in obedience. And here's the deal. Even when obeying God's commands seems in opposition to everything that we can think of in culture, in our own personal lives, even when it doesn't seem right, obeying them is the very best way to live. I think the problem with a lot of us is we think obedience is just too tough. It'd just be too hard. Look real quick with me at a verse, just one little verse, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. And I think this shows that God isn't trying to weigh us down with a real heavy load of obedience. Here's what he says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments 
or not burdensome. The Greek word that John uses for burdensome is barus. literally means heavy or weighty. He's saying, hey, God's commands are not weighty. Now, that doesn't mean they're not always easy, going to be easy to keep. It just means they're not going to crush us. They aren't supposed to be overly weighty for us here. And so I'm going to give the illustration that came to my mind, and I'm probably going to regret this, but as I was praying about it, it was the only thing I could think to, to illustrate this, and it's something I have no real ability to speak about whatsoever, and it's childbirth. So, so now from an entirely male perspective, I'll dig myself out of this hole I just made. And women, please, if I'm 100% wrong on this, just come up to me later and tell me. But here's what I observe. It seems like most women do not consider childbirth to be too heavy a burden. It seems to me like you consider it a blessing. I think God is infinitely wise. And one of the ways I know this is because women have children. There, were, there would be no population problem in the world if guys had children. <laughs> I guarantee you this. Scripture says we're stronger, and I 100% agree. It says women are the weaker vessel. But I think just that might mean we can bench press more than you because I don't want any part of having a baby. This is a true story. Uh, tell this because Christine's not here this morning. Um, we have four kids. We're so blessed. Our very first child was born cesarean. He was breached. Gavin was. But all the other kids were born V-back after that, which I, I think you used to not be able to do. And so after Macy was born, our little girl, our third child, I remember being in the hospital room and holding a little baby, and somebody was there, and they asked, hey, which is better, <laughs> to have the baby cesarean or have it the other way? And I started to answer. <laughs> and I could just, like, as soon as I started, I could feel little eyes boring a hole in the back of my head. I was like, maybe Christina should answer this. I was literally only going to say, if it's C-section, you get to schedule and know when you're going. That was all I was going to say. Childbirth is a blessing. Women rejoice in it because while it is exceptionally difficult, I, I, while it does look incredibly uncomfortable from my observation spot beside the bed, it's a blessing. Look at the blessing you receive when you get done. It's a little baby. Well, the same thing with obeying God's commands. His commands are not supposed to be hardships in her life. They're designed for our benefit, for our blessing, like not blowing up in the minefield, like having your car run correctly, like having a little baby. I think it's more than a little ironic The reason most of us end up given for disobedience is that we don't want to go through the pain of obedience when the opposite is true in our lives. Disobedience is always more painful than obedience to God. Not a big bottom line guy, but but there's a bottom line here. Do we trust God? If God really is loving, if he really is sovereign, then the stuff he asks us to do will be the very best stuff for us. And then he'll just be in control of aligning all the circumstances to make it happen. So if that's true, and I 100% believe it is, what should our response be? Look at John chapter 14, verse 21. It's one of the very first Bible verses I memorized after I began a relationship with God. In this verse, Jesus clearly tells his disciples, hey, his, this is how you're supposed to show that you love me. John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. I memorized it in the NIV. It says, I'll show myself to him. Why would you want to obey that? Because the blessing is so clear right there. If we do, he'll show himself to us. What an incredible blessing. I'm not a big formula guy, but this would have been point four on your outline if it made it through. If you want a formula for this, here it is. Write this down, because it's a good one. I totally stole this from somebody smarter than me. An author named Kenneth Boa wrote this down. Here it is. The more we know about God, then the more we can trust him. And the more we trust him, the more we love him. The more we love him, the more we'll obey him. 
And the more we obey him, the more we'll learn about his trustworthiness. I'm making a big cycle. I'm going to repeat it. I think it's that good. The more we know about God, the more we'll trust him. And the more we trust him, the more we'll love him. The more we love him, the more we'll obey him. The more we obey him, the more we learn about his trustworthiness. It's a big circle. I'll ask you a question. It can be a rhetorical one for now, but I think later, honestly, you ought to answer this one, even if it's just yourself. Have you ever regretted an act of obedience to God? Or I could frame it the other way. Have you ever not regretted an act of disobedience towards God? At the end of my life, I guess (laughs) truly at any stage of my life, I'd like to be known as a guy who's obedient because that would show love in my life. It would show a growing personal relationship with God. I don't want to obey just for the blessings. I don't want to obey just like it looks Saul did, Saul did in 1 Samuel. I want to be characterized by my obedience. The story became really, really practical in my life this summer. I, uh, I graduated from seminary this past summer, and I'd done an internship through Dallas Theological Seminary last fall, and I really hadn't thought about it, but uh, because of it, I had to create a resume. I didn't have a resume. And they put the resume on the website of Dallas Theological Seminary, and I started getting emails hey, do you want to come be our senior pastor? And it was goofy. I didn't know where they'd come from. The first one I got was from this little American Indian church in Oklahoma. They had 13 members. Hey, would you like to be our pastor? (laughs) How did you get my name? (laughs) I just didn't know what was going on. So I I figured it out. I researched it a little bit. And and I was like, wow, I'd never thought about that. I I was just going to seminary to become a better pastor. I I was sure that God was calling me here. And so I prayed about it. I talked with my wife, and I, I came and talked to Dan and the elders. I said, how would I know if God was calling me somewhere else? And they said, well, the only way you'd really know is to go and explore it. And so I didn't go to the American Indian Church, but, but I did. <laughs> I, I kind of paid attention. I said, are there any churches that it seemed like would be a good fit for me? And it turned out there was a church in Michigan uh, that was very similar to the chapels, non-denominational church, about this size, three services. And they invited us up, and Christine and I went up to go visit. And I didn't hear God clearly calling us, and I told them that, hey, I don't hear God calling us. They're like, hey, would you come back with your family? And so we went back. We're trying to be obedient. And, and again, still, I, I didn't hear God clearly calling us. And then they offered me a job. <laughs> and they said, we are 100% sure you're supposed to be our senior pastor. And there I was. I was stuck. I had to figure out. And, and what I want to be known for is my obedience. And I never felt clearly called to go to this church in Michigan. And so I had to tell them no. And I I think I crushed them real honestly because they were 100% sure I was supposed to go. And I was certain that God hadn't told me to go. Well, what if I'd gone? I would have been disobedient because God hadn't called me. It was these people who were calling me. I'm so thrilled to, to be here. I think this is where God wants me to be. But we have to be willing to ask ourselves some hard questions as we grow. And one of those is, Will, be, will we be willing to obey God even if it doesn't make sense to us? What if God had called me to that church in Michigan and I'd be like, dude, it's cold up there. <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking, God. But, you know, but if he'd called me, I'd have to go. What if the blessings come through raindrops and sleepless nights? <laughs> what will we do when we have the choice to obey but the cost seems too high or too burdensome? I think we need to be thinking about situations like this before they come up. That way we can be prepared for them. You want to see a fantastic example of this from the Bible. Turn to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. Follow along on your iPad. We read about three friends of Daniel who had what looks to me like a pretty tough choice in the obedience area. King Nebuchadnezzar 
has erected this huge golden idol, an image of himself. And at the sound of any type of music, folks were supposed to kneel down and worship this idol. And if they didn't, they'd be thrown into a blazing furnace. And so this looks like a little bit of a sticky wicket for our heroes here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Worship a false god or die. And King Nebuchadnezzar explains the situation to him, and he says, what god is there that can deliver you from my hands? This is a phenomenal story. Listen to how this text reads. It turns out it wasn't such a hard decision for these guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he'll deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. If God blesses us by delivering us, that's great. And if he blesses us by not delivering us, that's great. Now this is good because we get to wrestle a little bit in the application here. Some of God's commands seem to make sense to us, and some don't. I think we kind of get that idea, hey, we're not supposed to murder or steal. You know, th- Those make sense. But it seems kind of silly sometimes the ones that are a little trickier. What, what about pray for my enemies? What about disobedience or death? Those things require real love and real discipline and real accountability from our friends because they don't make much sense. What do we do with the real tricky commands in crunch time? You see the movie Courageous? I love that movie. And and one of the scenes towards the end, Javier Martinez is the guy who has a hard time finding a job, and he finally gets a job, and the plant manager this place where he is asks him to lie, wants him to fudge the numbers on a shipping manifest for for the benefit of the company. And Javier goes back and he prays. And he knows for sure what he's supposed to do. He knows he's supposed to tell the truth. And he knows he's supposed to obey God's commands. And he knows that if he does, he's going to lose this job. And he needs this job. And if you remember in the movie, what does he do? He obeys God. He tells the truth and he gets wildly blessed. He becomes like the shipping manager or something. But because he was obedient. I love that. Even though it's fiction, it teaches us a lot about the obedience cycle. The more we know about God, the more we can trust him. The more we trust him, the more we love him. The more we love him, the more we obey him. The more we obey him, the more we learn about him and his trustworthiness. Javier's story is fiction. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's is not. They have to make a decision. Disobey God or die, and they choose to obey. And what happens? They don't die. God does protect them, and they get blessed. And King Nebuchadnezzar learns a pretty incredible lesson. You see at the end of the story in Daniel 3, verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar responded, and he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servant, who put their trust in him, violating the king's commands and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Hmm. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had these two conflicting orders. But the real issue for them wasn't, hey, what's the order? It was who gave the order? I love that. For them, the order of a king who could take their lives didn't measure up at all to an order from the king of kings. How are we doing in this area? Where's our trust and obedience when the blazing fire circumstances are happening in our lives? Yeah, I know, God, you've commanded me to be holy and you've called me to purity, but gosh, my sinful nature wants me to delve into pornography and and really enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Who am I going to obey? 
I know that God commanded me to love and serve him. But gosh, today my couch is really calling me to love it and serve myself some snacks while I watch some TV. Who am I going to obey? Listen, I'm not saying this is easy. I'm pointing to a pattern from Scripture that shows obedience to God is often going to be about saying no to our personal desires. Author Vernon Grounds has a great name for this. This would have been the fifth point on your outline. Based on the fact that Jesus modeled this for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, verse 39, Grounds calls this notion of saying no to our desires, having a Gethsemane mindset. And Jesus went a little while beyond the disciples. He fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what's awaiting him on the cross. And he says, Hey, God, if there's another way to accomplish this, this big picture plan you have of redemption and reconciliation, now would be a good time to know. You better come up with something fast. But, and here's the obedience part. Here's where Jesus lays aside his personal preference. He says, but if you don't, well, then not my will, but your will be done. This is it. This is the ultimate statement of obedience in the Bible. What Jesus wanted at that moment was not the same thing God wanted. Obeying, following God's will, led Jesus to what we know, an agonizing death on the cross unfathomable separation from his father. Jesus was 100% aware of that. That's why he prayed that prayer. But still, he realized that God's plan was going to be the best. Obedience to God, listen to me, obedience to God is always where the blessing is. That's what brings God's very best. And so as we continue through the book of James for the next year, however long it takes to get through there, we have all these choices to make. We can rationalize our disobedience. We can say, hey, Obeying all those commands, that's just too tough. Or we can put our trust in the God of the universe. We can develop this Gethsemane mindset, and we can come to know God more so that we can trust him more. Because when we trust him more, we love him more. When we love him more, we can obey him more. When we obey him, then we learn more about his trustworthiness. We can jump into that cycle ourselves. Fifty-four commands in the book of James. Will we be content to just listen to some sermons over the next year? Or will we truly put feet to our faith? That's what the title of that sermon series is. Will we grow in our relationship with God over the next year? The conference I was at this past week heard a lot of phenomenal speakers. One of them pulled out a two-by-four and hit me over the head, and he said this, Reggie Joyner. He said, in the body of Christ, when we just sit and soak, our passion fizzles and fades. So we get that choice for the next year. Will we just sit and soak in some messages from James? Or will we look at those commands and say, wow, if I do those, that's where the blessing is. Is our passion for obedience? Is that what we want to be characterized by? Or has that passion fizzled in our lives? When people talk about me, do they say, wow, do you know James? Man, that guy is obedient. That's how I'd like to be known. Let me pray for us. Father God, we get the opportunity. We can't now say we're not aware. God, very honestly, I don't think many of us have been unaware. We understand that we're supposed to be doing and living your word. God, as we walk through this book of James, help us put feet to our faith. Help us be characterized by just our radical obedience. God, for your glory. We love you so much, Lord.
Help us to leave changed. Equip us to bring you all the glory that you're worthy of. We love you and we ask all that in your son Jesus' name.